As soon as you encourage universities to think of themselves as organizations selling a product, of course, that means that it becomes very much more difficult for people teaching in universities to say to students, look, um, you don't know what you're talking about, shut up, go away and do some more work. Uh, because the student will then complain and say, well, I, 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 I don't pay my £9,000 a year for this. On today's British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Andrew Tettenborn, Professor of Law at Swansea University, who writes for publications such as The Spectator and The Critic. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Professor Andrew Tettenborn, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. My pleasure entirely. Uh, you teach law at Swansea University and you also write for various publications on issues such as free speech. So university students used to protest for freedoms, uh, pushing boundaries. In recent years there seems to have been some reversal of that. We've seen issues uh, with free speech in universities, decolonisation, cancel culture. Uh, what are your thoughts on this situation? So what you say is right but it actually goes rather further. Um, when it comes to sheer intolerance in universities, um, it's the senior members, it's the academics, who are now very much making the running. Um, which, in a sense, I suppose is understandable. It's those guys and women who, for example, wrote the books on critical race theory or critical fat theory or whatever the sort of latest fad is in critical theory. Um, but it's also they who draw up, for example, um, the acceptable speech policies or policies on what they sometimes call microaggressions. Um, I don't know if you remember, but um, it was at the end of last year, it was Cambridge University, and that, this was entirely the senior members of Cambridge University who tried to introduce a code which encourage students to rat on any other student or professor who they thought might be guilty of microaggression. This wasn't a student demand. This was a demand from well-meaning senior members. And it, it took protests for this to be abandoned. But it's not only Cambridge. Um, a Scottish university got itself into the news, oh, I think slightly more recently, when a student questioned certain trans beliefs, said essentially there are two sexes and that's it, uh, found herself reported and actually found herself facing disciplinary proceedings. But those disciplinary proceedings, again, were brought by the university administrators, which makes it even more worrying. Her case is was then taken over, I'm happy to say, uh, by the Free Speech Union. But um, it's that sort of problem which I think is much more serious. 
think modern universities are expected not to just provide education, but also seem something akin to welfare services now. Yeah. Is that something that British universities should look at kind of trying to turn around, or do we just accept that's a symptom of modern life and that's how it is now? If you go back, what, 20, up to, up to about 20, 30 years ago, um, a university was thought of essentially as a place you could go to, a little bit like a club that you could join, a place that you could go to. Um, you might be expected to contribute to the running costs, just as you are at the Royal and Ancient in St Andrews. Um, you might be expected to contribute to the running costs, um, but it was very much a place for you to go and study um, if, that was, uh, if that was what you wanted to do. Um, the, and of course, sometimes you got help from the government to do it in the shape of university grants. Um, the problem really arose when the government mucked up on its efforts to increase university fees. Because the government obviously was worried about taxpayers' money going in ever-increasing sums um, on support for students. So it up to the fees, first of all, I think, to 3,000 a year, and it's now something over 9,000. Um, now, if the government had said, universities are expensive to run, and, you know, that, that's just a fact of life, uh, if you want to go, uh, you have to make a substantial contribution, but, of course, we will help clever people who want to go and wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it. That was the proper way to do it. The trouble was um, the education minister at the time they upped the fees to 9,000 was David Willits, um, who's very much a free marketeer. And he chose to say, well, um, these days you should see university as an investment you're laying out £9,000 a year, but look at all the extra money that you might, it might be able to earn later. So universities, they very much stopped being institutions that you joined and contributed to and became very much more, quite simply, uh, purveyors of services. Now, there are problems with that. One of them, quite simply, is this. Um, if you're selling bags of beans or tins of beans in Sainsbury's, or if you're on the, on the floor at John Lewis, um, you can be expected to accept that the customer is king, even if you think the customer is severely wrong. You say, well, of course, sir, is right. Of course, we'll change it, and so on. Um, now, as soon as you encourage universities to think of themselves as organizations selling a product, of course, that means that it becomes very much more difficult for people teaching in universities to say to students, look, um, you don't know what you're talking about shut up, go away, and do some more work. Uh, because the student will then complain and say, well, I, I, I don't pay my £9,000 a year for this. Um, as it is, 
um, so long as students think of universities as outfits from which they buy services, well, of course, you will also get what we've had most recently, which is trigger warnings on books that the rest of us read perfectly naturally. You know, taking it in the last couple of months, Warwick University, um, I think it either withdrew or put a trigger warning on Thomas Hardy's Far From the Madding Crowd on the basis that it showed the brutality of rural life, which might, de which might depress some students. And one of the most progressive books ever written was The, the Underground Railroad, which was about how, how to deal with slavery in the United States and the way in which slaves were helped to get to Canada. One would have thought that was exactly what you should encourage students to read, unless, of course, you're at Essex University. Because Essex said, oh no, we're withdrawing this from the reading list because the graphic descriptions of slavery might trigger certain students. Um, you know, and, and make them distressed. Now, um, it's that sort of thing which does come very much from the idea of the university as a, as a provider of a service. And sticking with this subject, the number of international students in our universities is quite extraordinary levels at the moment. Yes. Uh, London School of Economics is over 50%. Yes. Uh, Russell Group universities are, are touching one in four. Mm. Um, these university places are obviously no longer available to British students. Uh, what are your thoughts on this situation? Is this again profit-driven? Um, again, this is, a very, this is a very difficult problem to deal with, but you're quite right. Um, it starts out again with the idea that we look at universities as providers of a service. Now, uh, if you're providing a service, and you have one group of customers who are going to pay nearly three times as much for that service as another group of customers. Uh, you know, you don't have to be an Einstein to realize that if you're the CEO of that organization, uh, then you're going to go for the people who pay more. Um, the trouble is, it's not actually very good, I think, for the university uh, experience. Um, one problem is quite simply that if universities become to a very large extent uh, devoted to foreign students, you're in danger of killing the goose that laid the golden eggs because foreign students very often come here to savour and get a chance to see what English education is because we do things rather differently from institutions abroad. But if they come and they find that, you know, all their friends come from China or Nigeria or Central America or wherever, um, what we're not doing is providing anything like uh, the traditional university education. I think it would be a good thing to put a limit on the proportion of foreign students that universities were meant to take. The other thing which is extremely unfashionable to say but used not to be is that arguably we may have too many universities anyway.
Um, I think it was in the early 1960s when it was proposed that university numbers should go through the roof because we were meant to be a sort of highly educated nation uh, for the white, hot, hot, white heat of technology. Um, I think it was Kingsley Amis who sort of sat back, because he, he again was in the university world, sat back and said, actually, more will mean worse. Um, I fear that Kingsley Amis is right. What effect can we expect it to have on Britain if we keep giving uh, our best educations to fewer and fewer British people? In the end, um, if British people who, can't, who would benefit from a university education can't get it, I think that is going to harm the body politic in this country. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I think that is one reason, actually, why we do need to make sure not only that we have absolutely top quality university education for those who benefit from it, but that everyone from Britain who can benefit from it is able to. If that means capping foreign students, I'm afraid so be it. So a, a significant proportion of these foreign students are from China. Do you feel there's any risk in having a, a, a large proportion of students here who are from an authoritarian nation? There are risks. One is that um, a number of certainly the graduate students from China are in research which may be defense critical. And just as Japan um, at the beginning of the 20th century drank deeply at the well of Western education, and then proceeded to do rather better what the West had previously done. Um, China undoubtedly is sucking as hard as it can at um, certain subjects in universities where they, they, they need Chinese people to be better educated. Um, there is another problem, um, which is that when you have a very large student body from an authoritarian country, and it's not only China, it could be Saudi Arabia, um, it could be Russia, it's a pretty fair inference that you're going to have some stool pigeons there. Um, and again, I don't think there's any secret about the fact that if you are a Chinese student in a British university, and you happen, for example, to feel sympathetic to people in Hong Kong or people in Xinjiang province. You're very, very careful to say that before you say that, even in Britain, which you know, we say what you damn well please, um, because you know perfectly well that one of the other cohort of Chinese students may very well have been um, slipped a douceur by the Chinese embassy and a telephone number saying, if you hear anything that might interest us, uh, do feel free to get in touch. So are we seeing the Chinese Communist Party gain more influence in British universities through things such as donations to institutions and Confucius Institutes? Hmm. Um, the answer is yes. Um, 
The Chinese government is very, very good at the softly, softly approach. What it will do, and the, and the, and the Chinese Cultural Bureau is very happy to go to any British educational institution and say, um, as a means of increasing friendship between the Chinese and the British people, you know, Sino-British friendship, very good thing, we will give free, gratis and for nothing money to set up um, an institute so British people can find out more about the great wealth of Chinese culture. And these institutes tend to be called the Confucius Institute. They're not always called that, but uh, they tend to go under that name. Um, once they're set up, um, well, one, they allow the introduction of a fair number of Chinese students in, some of whom undoubtedly uh, will have been issued with the necessary phone number of the right chap at the Chinese embassy. Um, but two, um, they can certainly engage in a little discreet propaganda and say, you know, look what China is doing about uh, COVID. We have a zero COVID policy, unlike the West. Um, we do our best to educate minorities. Look at the Uyghurs. They are primitive Muslims, and we are now sort of bringing them out into the 20th century, and so on. So you, you, that, that can discreetly be done. Um, what, they, what they've also done is given large sums of money to individual institutions for uh, research programs or whatever. Now, that can have a much more insidious effect. One is that people connected to these research programs will find it very difficult to say anything which might embarrass the people who provided the money. And there was a, a very good example, actually, again, it was either last year or earlier this year, I forget which, Jesus College, Cambridge. Now, in the last 10 years, Jesus College has raked in Chinese cash. It, it, and it's to the extent of millions. And um, the, 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 it still has support from a number of Chinese organizations, many of which we fear may have fairly close connections to people fairly close to Xi Jinping. Um, and, for example, in Jesus College, uh, one uh, senior member, one professor in the college, um, went on record as saying to students, or sorry, didn't go on, he said to students very definitely, it is extremely unhelpful for members of this college to put forward the kind of one-way vision that you find in the West about matters like Hong Kong and matters like uh, what is going on in Xinjiang province. Um, all discussions of this sort need to be very carefully balanced. 
and it would be very unhelpful, which is a sort of typical term used actually by the Chinese embassy, it would be very unhelpful were controversial views of this kind to be regularly put forward here. So I think you've had a, a personal experience along these lines as well in what you described as a chilling email where you were invited to preview your slides to a member of the Chinese Communist Party? I, I teach commercial law, which is about as uncontroversial as you can get. And during COVID, I was asked to do online a sort of introductory lecture. I've forgotten exactly what it was on, but it was some extremely exciting topic like the law of charter parties, where it's, shall we say, rather difficult to work in criticism of President Xi Jinping. Uh, but anyway, um, I, I, I produced the talk of the slides, and I then got a phone call from the person who was organising it in this country, who said, oh, by the way, could you just arrange to send the PowerPoint slides you're going to use, the copy of any other materials you're going to provide, um, just so um, the relevant authorities in China can check that they are entirely relevant and don't contain anything that might cause difficulties and so on. Um, I had absolutely nothing to hide. I hope that I bored the official stiff by making him read a great deal about the law of charter parties. Uh, but nevertheless, it was something which left me somewhat unhappy um, that universities should be under this kind of discreet control. And how does the online safety bill fit in, into all of this? Um, badly. I think I, if, I, if I can be brief. It's a misguided bill. It first came in because of a misguided campaign by the Daily Telegraph about five years ago. Now, generally speaking, I, I agree with the Telegraph on most things, but it got it seriously wrong here. What, what, there was a case where, it was a very tragic case, where a young person committed suicide because of certain material she'd seen online. Um, at that point, there was a concerted campaign from the Telegraph um, to put um, internet providers, and in particular social media, under a duty of care. And that was the origin of what's now the Online Harms Bill. Um, now, it is just defensible in the case of children. I'm not sure that even there the cure might not be worse than the disease. Um, the trouble is that as soon as you get a bill like that, every politician who wants to make a name for themselves as um, protecting a particular group really wants to get on the bandwagon. And um, a number of people said, well, you know, protect children, that's fine, but uh, what about adults? 
uh, there are vulnerable adults as well. Surely you don't want a completely arbitrary distinction so you can say what you like to adults but you can't say what you like on media likely to reach children. Surely we should extend that to stuff that's legal and harmful to adults. And I think it was Nadine Doris said, OK, yes, let's extend the bill and provide for a power in the Secretary of State to stipulate all sorts of material that he thinks might cause harm to adults and put at least the bigger social media units under a duty to suppress that as well. The Facebooks of this world, the TikToks of this world, will always err on the side of caution. And if there is something which it's alleged is causing harm or serious distress or whatever to a particular group of adults, they will either withdraw it completely or make it much more difficult to access. Um, so whatever the government may say in terms of preventing harm, what you're going to end up with is a great deal more uncontroversial stuff and it's going to be much more difficult to find the controversial stuff online. You'll have to go to much more niche websites to do it. Professor Andrew Tessenborn, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Entirely my pleasure.